Good morning. How are you doing? Okay. This is, they're awake. <laughs> this is my friend Jen. She directs the Alpha Center here, and this is Sanctity of Life Weekend. She's just come to share a few thoughts, results, and things of uh, young people who have come for help. And are we going to do the selfie thing we again? We are. We are. Okay. So you all in the middle, kind of lean in a little bit, smile and wave. There you go. You guys, good listeners. Here we go. Great. That might be the best one yet. They're gorgeous. They are. Yes. They are. They are. Well, thank you for having me today. It's always so great to be at my home church um, and to share the work of the Alpha Center, particularly as we recognize uh, the Sanctity of Human Life uh, weekend and month in January. Uh, it's a perfect time to reflect on the value of every precious life. Uh, thank you for, to many of you as individuals and to Timberline for being um, an ongoing, committed, prayerful, and uh, contributing partner to the life-affirming ministry of the Alpha Center. We really could not do the work that we do without you. Uh, because of the generosity of churches like Timberline and many of you, every single service that we offer is offered at no cost to anyone in our community who needs it. Our medical services include pregnancy tests, STD screening, and ultrasounds uh, that are limited and obstetric in, in nature. And those three services together are called our uh, pre-abortion screening appointments because we want to reach an abortion-minded woman where she is and provide services to support her and provide life-affirming information to her. We also provide STD screening as a standalone service to women and men in our community, and we have a professional relationships. Um, we have two counselors on our, on our team to provide counseling uh, to our community. Last year, we continued to see our numbers increase across the board, and we were able to provide 165 pregnancy appointments. And of those, 133 of those women were at some level vulnerable towards an abortion decision. And and uh, a good percentage of those in the 80 percentile range ended up deciding to choose life for their baby. And they are, they are the ones, yes, they are the ones who, who deserve that applause. It's a courageous decision in, in the face of a, of a tough situation. We also provided 251 ultrasounds, and the reason that number is so much higher than our pregnancy tests is that we will walk alongside an abortion-vulnerable woman while she is making the decision about her baby's life, and we will see her up to five weeks in a row and give five different ultrasounds to her as she is making that decision. STD screening uh, is our, our most sought-after service. We provided 374 appointments. And then for counseling, we had 156 individuals that came in for counseling last year. Our wraparound services that are supportive in nature uh, include uh, successful families classes that meet once a month for new moms, new dads, and caregivers. We have one-on-one -on -one, uh, new mom mentoring. We have one-on-one -on -one dad coaching. And then we offer um, a class for women who have experienced the loss of a child through miscarriage, stillbirth, or early infant death. And that's called Women of Valor. And then we have, um, as well, a program for women who have experienced abortion in their past, and it is called Awake, and it's a nine-week recovery and reconciliation small group. We also have care for, for men who have abortion experience in their past, and then about five years ago, we wrote uh, a healthy relationships curriculum called Thrive that's available to youth groups in our community. 
A tension that we often face is not always knowing the decision or the outcome of our patients um, as they've chosen what to do with their baby's life and their pregnancy. Uh, this tension is what makes a story like this one so much more precious to us and I hope to you. In December, uh, like many of you, we started receiving Christmas cards. And when we opened this particular Christmas card, as many of them do, it had lots of pictures of this little one uh, dressed in flannel in his little pretend Jeep out in the snow and throwing snow around. And it just was a celebration on the front of this card. And on the back of this card, uh, the handwritten note to us was Merry Christmas. This is a photo of our child who was born this summer. We were 18 and scared when we came to see you last fall. But when we heard the little heartbeat, all of that fear fell away. Thank you so much for what you do. And I will tell you that our team, we had, we had tears of joy and excitement over this note and this little one because we didn't, we didn't know what, what this family had chosen. And while we face many victories and have had many victories, including the overturn of Roe in our nation, the battle related to abortion continues. And we must recognize that our work is far from over. And through it all, we rest in the assurance that God is in control, he is merciful, he is sovereign, he is loving, he is gracious. We're entering 2024 with an anticipation of serving even more abortion vulnerable women in our community. We remain steadfast in our commitment to providing life-affirming, Jesus-centered, dignified care, and we are deeply grateful to the, for the continued generosity and prayers of so many of you, including Timberline as a supporting church. You are an essential part of the army that goes to, life, that goes to battle for life every day in our community. Thank you so much for what you do to support us. Jen is one of us. She's a Timberliner. She's here with us. And um, quite apart from that, I think we should just pray. Can we do that? Let's have a prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for Jen, for her team. Thank you for the folks who not only contribute monies, but who contribute time and prayer. Praying for life in this community and for the young women who face excruciating challenges day in and day out. We're so grateful for your hand on her and on this vision. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Why don't you clap her out, would you? Thanks, Jen. Well, today we're in the 14th chapter of Mark. We've been in Mark for a year. You, you, I mean, that's, and it's been a great journey. I think we've liked it. And, um, Today it's the story about a woman, very appropriate. I have spent the last 60 hours with six women, spectacular women, at my house. One is Ruth, my wife. The next one is Erica, our eldest daughter. And she brought two of her daughters from Eugene, Oregon. And they brought the two newest babies. So these are great grandbabies, right? And I've, I've said this a lot of times, you know, when, when you become a grandparent, you start feeling immortal because you're going past the next generation. When you're a great-grandparent, you're just officially old. And so, you know, there we are. But Erica called up, 
Erica called up a few weeks ago and said, we want to surprise mom. And because she hadn't held one of these great grandbabies, they are eight months and four months old. And we just, we just want to uh, bring them and surprise her. I said, you know, if you just show up, she's going to have a heart attack. We can't do that. But let me tell her. And when I told her, She's standing in the kitchen. She just started to weep. She said, I could never have a better present than this. So the, the moms, who are Claire and Allie, brought Nora and Stella. And here's grandma, great-grandma both, with Nora and Stella. Stella's the one on the left. Nora, she's eight months. And Nora's the one on the right. And we have an amazing picture in our room of Ruth, a little older than that. But she has that same face. She's not giving anything away. Stella on the way, you know, she's got that face right there. And, and when she came, you know, we, had to, we have to move the furniture around. We got a quilt on the floor and all this. And um, Nora has not turned over. She's been trying to turn over. But last night while I'm here speaking, she turned over. It was like a moment, right? So there you go. Thanks. For, it's got nothing to do with my message. Well, they're women. So that does that. Okay. The power of a woman, or anybody, but a woman in this case, to impact the world is one woman, one moment in this text. We've been reading the story of Mark for a year. already said that. Jesus came to redeem us, and when he redeems us, he changes everything. It may not be instantaneous, but we... We, we see things in a different way. We see ourselves in a different way. We hopefully see our future and our past in a different way. We see each other in a different way. Sometimes we see sunsets and flowers in a different way when we realize who the creator is, right? And um, I'm a young pastor back in the day. We're doing a baptismal service in a swimming pool. And Bob has come to faith. He's been redeemed and he knows it big time. And his wife is baptized, a couple of other. And so, you know, we're there. It's a swimming pool. People are in swimming suits. And so the mom comes down. She's baptized. And then the kids come. They're baptized. And I turn to have Bob come down. And I'm a little shocked. Because Bob is standing there in a suit. And, he, and his best shoes. Back in the day, some of you are old enough to remember when Florsheim shoes were the tip of the, tip of the, the I mean, you know, the wing tips, wing Wingtips were in. Now it would be Gucci or Armani, some guy, some Italian person. But back in the day. And, and I didn't know what exactly to do. I didn't ask him to come down. But he just stepped off down the steps in his suit and walks over to me. And I'm standing here. And I wanted to say something profound. But I, you know, I'm lost for words, which is a rare deal. And, and so I just baptized him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sins washed away. And when he came up, I just couldn't stand it. I just said, Bob, why did you do that? And like in your best suit, why did you do that? And he just looked at me and grinned and said, Pastor, Jesus gave his very best for me, and it totally changed my life. And I just wanted to give my best back to him. You know, there's something about an act of devotion, planned or spontaneous, that's profound. And so we've been looking at Mark. And Jesus came to the planet for 33 years. <clears throat> he lived among us. John says literally, he came and camped out, right? Tented among us. And I'm saying, why did he come for 33 years? I mean, he could have just been like an avatar and, you know, come down and boom, he takes up the good people, whatever he does, and, and, and it's like beat me up Scotty or something. But that's not what he does. 33 years. 
lives for 30 years on the down low, lives in a little village, learns his dad's craft. He's a stonemason, a carpenter, a builder, whatever. And then at 30, he goes public. And the book of Mark starts where he goes public. So in the book of Mark, we don't have the baby Jesus story, any of that. We start with him as, a, as an adult when he's baptized. And we have the next three years. So in, in chapter 14 now, we are at a place where it's the last few weeks of his life, and it's getting intense. We've been reading Mark over the year, and we've looked at three things, essentially. His teaching, he spoke with authority like no one else. We're looking at his one, signs and wonders, which are like miracles there of nature, or feeding of the 5,000, or calming the storm, or healing a, a withered hand, or all of those things. And then we've been looking at moments, exchanges with individuals. This is one of those. And the exchange can have a healing or a teaching connected to it. But we're looking at those moments. And this weekend, we have a moment like that. We're days away from the crucifixion, and in this piece, it's a clash of kingdoms. You say, what's a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is who's ruling, who's in charge. That's what it was about back in the day. And, and Jesus comes with this message of his kingdom. I have come to give you life and that more abundantly. That's my message to you. I've come to do that for you and the life that goes on forever, right? The guys in power are religious and political leaders who are in bed together, and they control the whole culture, everything they do, and they add stuff on all the time. And so he's, Jesus says, I come to bring you life and that more abundantly, and the, these leaders are saying, we're not having any, any of that, so they came after him. For the three years that he went public, they came after him. If this were a movie screenplay, here's the setting. You've got the bad guys on all sides. You've got Jesus in the middle with an unnamed woman who's carrying a jar of perfume. <laughs> What's that about? What you have here is a love story in the middle of a murder plot. Okay, that's this, that's this teaching. Here it goes. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming, scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So they, they want to arrest and kill this popular figure, but they want to do it. This is murder on the down low. They want to do it on the down low so they don't have a riot on their hands. So it, the understatement would be, and if you're taking notes, this is like the first sort of segue line. It's a tense time. That's the understatement of the weekend. For three years, day in and day out, they have been after him. They've been challenging him. And, and now it's coming to a head in this moment. It's kind of inevitable. Those of you who understand science, and I don't understand very much, but there's this principle in the fluid mechanics, I think, called the Bernoulli principle. A guy named Bernoulli identified this thing, that if you take, if you take a volume like water and you put it in a funnel, if it goes from a larger space into a smaller space, it goes faster, right? That's what's happening here at the end of the book of Mark. And the, the thought is that whatever's going to happen here, this is a crucial moment. Uh, Sixty years ago, when I was in graduate school in Wheaton, Illinois, I took a class in Mark, and we read through all of Mark and documented each incident and all those kinds of things. And our prof wanted us to be able to visualize it, right? And so he said, 
choose, or she said, choose colors and symbols for the various things. So we have a, we have a symbol of a bird for the Holy Spirit, and we had this symbol for the times that he predicted his crucifixion, and we had this symbol for miracles and this symbol for teachers. And the symbol for confrontation or conflict or persecution, I did as, as jagged lightning. Now, and and I, I wanted it to be like Michelangelo or Rembrandt and so forth. But really, it really, I stumbled on this drawing the other day, and it's more like cave art from a sixth grader. But here's the, here's the chart of Mark. You can't read any of it, but you can see the colors. And you see the purple lightning there at the front when he, when he went public. And you keep going, and it lessens a little bit in the middle. But by the time you get to the last few weeks, there's a lot of purple lightning. There's a lot of persecution. And that's what this is. So Passover, which is that celebration every spring that celebrates th their liberation for hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, is, has been celebrated for all those years hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's the biggest national gathering in, on the Jewish calendar. And 50,000 people in Jerusalem, people came from all over the then known world for this festival. And uh, it probably grew to a quarter of a million people during that time. People camped out all over. And in the middle of that time, a conspiracy is hatched. This is not a theory. A real conspiracy was hatched. And, and it, it, murder is in their hearts. And then in the middle of that, Compassion shows up, Com conspiracy and compassion. And if you, if you can, if you'd like to, how about joining me in reading this out loud? It'll be on the screen. This is the text. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Well, there's a deal. What are the pieces in this story? You, you've got a village, Bethany, which is two miles north of Jerusalem. Apparently, Jesus has come during Passover week to stay there, and he goes into town, into the city every day, he goes and teaches in the temple and that sort of thing. Comes home in the evenings, going back and forth. He's having a relaxing dinner with his friends. Jesus is big. When you read the Gospels, Jesus eats a lot. I mean, he's, he's with his friends. He eats with you a lot and with me a lot. And table... Fellowship in the rabbinic tradition is a huge deal because you're identifying with everybody. That's one of the reasons Jesus had gotten in trouble. He ate with the wrong people. They, 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 they were going to taint him or whatever it is, right? So he's reclining. The tradition was you had sort of benches and you leaned on an elbow. Your feet were extended over there. He, but he's at the home of Simon the leper. Well, who wants to eat at that house? Well, apparently this Simon is no longer a leper. I'm, we're guessing, scholarship would say, that this is someone that Jesus healed. We don't know who he was. He's not mentioned again, but it's the home of Simon the leper. And, um, and then an unnamed woman shows up. In the John account, they call her name Mary. They think she might have been Mary, who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But in this account, she's not named. And she shows up with this jar of perfume, which we'll talk about in a moment, and then she breaks the jar. This is an alabaster jar with it. It's sealed, and you break the neck, and you pour out the liquid. And she poured it on Jesus' head. Well, we're just getting ready to have what the, the salad or the matzahs or whatever they're going to eat, you know. And boom, she pours this on his head. 
Some of those, verse 14, 4, and 5, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another. They're not talking to Jesus. They're doing stuff sideways. Have you ever had sideways conversations when you were too chicken heart to talk to the guy? I've, I have a specialty. I've got a master's in sideways conversations, you know. What, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. Well, that's a good thought. That's not a terrible thought. But that wasn't really where their hearts were. And they rebuked her harshly. During Passover, it was common to give gifts to the poor, much like Christmas time or Thanksgiving, something like that. But if I'm in that room, I have two questions. And they are these. What is she doing? And the second question is, where'd she get the cash for that? Because we're talking expensive here. And, you know, you have a couple of obvious options. One was maybe it was illicit acts. And... and some traditions say that's, that's correct. But the other is that this was a family heirloom, the most precious thing a family owned, and it was passed down from generation to generation to generation, and she takes it, and in this moment of time, out of a spontaneous act of love, breaks the top off and pours it on Jesus' head. Uh, this nard, spike nard, is a rare perfume that's extracted from the roots of grasses in India. And the process of, of making it is very costly, very time consuming. It takes a long time. So it's a precious thing, it takes a long time to, it almost sounds like redeeming the world. It sounds like that long process that Jesus goes through. It's like this is a mirror image of who Jesus is symbolically poured on his head. It's, it was so expensive that few people could ever afford to get it. I mean, this isn't like Chanel Number no. 5 or whatever, whatever the perfume that you ladies have that is really in style today, the most expensive. This is more than that. This is worth a year's salary, like a, like a year's wage. And she pours it on his head. It really was only for royalty, you know, for kings and princes and princesses. And if you... If you had a name for it, it might be something like, well, this is the Royal Reserve or something. But let's go on with the text. If you join me in reading this out loud, it'd be great. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done a beautiful thing to me. What was she thinking? Well, what she was thinking was like Bob the baptismal guy. She was, she was thinking, here's this person who's touched my life. Here's this person who speaks truth that is touching my spirit that I can't fully get my head around, but just to be in his presence is profound. You know, that person you love and you say, we don't have to talk. I'd just like to be in the same room with you. That kind of stuff. That's what's going on here. And, and she does this spontaneously out of a pure heart of love. I mean, you know this, love in its purest form is tough to understand. I mean, it's irrational. People do stuff when they love somebody else. Like, really? You did that? What? That was like goofy. Some would call it crazy, you know. But it's, it's hard to understand sometimes what a spontaneous act of love does because you don't see, oftentimes you don't see a return on investment or the person on looking doesn't see that. Malcolm Muggeridge was a well-known uh, writer, 
political writer, among other things, in England back in the last century. Back in the early part of the century, he was a communist. He thought that was the way to change the world until he, he saw what Stalin did back in the 20s and 30s in Russia. Millions of people killed under his kingdom. And so he was disillusioned and stopped being a communist, but he was always an agnostic. There might be a God, but I can't know him. But along the way, he heard about this woman. There's another woman. This woman, an, an Albanian nun, who was born in 1910, in August of 1910, uh, six weeks after my mother was born. And uh, she went, this nun, went to Calcutta, India, and started a group called Little Sisters of Mercy. You know her as Mother Teresa. And uh, he heard about her doing something. You see, Calcutta, or Kolkata now, in 1970, had about seven million people. You talk about a, a density of population. Uh, I've been there a number of times, but in 1977, million people. And we live in a community of about 49 square miles, if you're talking just about Fort Collins, seven by seven, something like that. And 188,000 people in those 49 square miles. In, uh, in Calcutta in 1970, the density of the population downtown was 100,000 people per square mile. Are you with me? That's called standing on each other's head. I mean, it's, it's totally dense. And a tremendously poor population at that time, at least. And of those, 100,000 of those lived on the streets. It wasn't just that they were homeless for a time. It's that they, Ruth and I were there three years later in 1973, and we drove through Calcutta at night. Someone drove us through. And you have the smog or the smoke from the dung pots over which people cooked their food and it was like a heavy fog and you'd see a little light here and there from the street light but you look on the side of the road and there were just mounds and it was people whole families under pieces of cardboard or sheets of some kind and they were conceived born brought up lived and died there in that space and mother Teresa got to Calcutta and saw this and said um, we're not going to let people die there, whatever else we're not going to. And so the Sisters of Mercy and Mother Teresa started an effort to go and find the people who were ill and were dying. And they created places called houses of dying or homes of dying. And they would bring them there and they would wash them and feed them in their last days or weeks until they went on. They didn't ask them their religious persuasion or their politics or anything like that. They didn't ask him to do anything. They said, here are these people who have lacked dignity their whole life, lacked honor their whole life. We're going to honor them and dignify them in their last days of life. Well, Malcolm Muggeridge heard about this. He didn't know about the religious part or anything. He didn't care about that. But he went to do a documentary in 1969. And when they went to the House of the Dying to, to do the filming, they wouldn't allow them, I think, to bring lights in there. And these were not dark places, but they were dim. It was muted. And, well, they shot the film anyway, and when they developed the film, as I understand it, it was like it was lighted up. And he said that he experienced a divine light when he did that. And in that moment, that one moment in time, his heart was changed, and he started following Jesus. It's one moment in time, and he called his documentary Something Beautiful for God. Just like this language, she has done something beautiful that's how it is. I, I call this in, in my message an elegant anointing. 
Jesus or Jewish people knew about anointing. They, they still do. They, they knew about anointings with water, washings, just sort of ritual cleansing and ablutions and that sort of thing. They knew about uh, anointing with oil. You, you can read the New Testament. If, if you're sick, call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint you with oil. It, it's symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But anointing with perfume? I, yeah, that's kind of a new gig, right? And, and the, the thing about this elegant anointing is that this is tremendously costly. I already said that. But Jesus had said this thing, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Your heart follows your treasure. See, I, I would have probably said it, well, where your heart is, there your treasure. And that may be true, but he says it very specifically, where your treasure is, your heart is. I was in Seattle a couple of years back, and I was sitting with some business leaders, and we were talking about values. And somebody was saying, well, what kind of values, how do you know what people's values are? And I said, well, it's, it's pretty straightforward, really. Show me your credit card bills, or if you're doing checkbooks still, you know, show me your checkbook and your credit card bills, and show me your calendar, and I will tell you what your values are where we put our money, what we invest or spend on, that's our life the second time around. That's why we get so, so you know, a little sucking air through our teeth when we talk about money, because that's my life the second time around. Where I invest my money or spend it, and how I arrange my time, those are the things that tell you what your values are. That's essentially it. You say, is that true in every day? I, probably not. I think it's a generalization, but I think it's an observable generalization. So an, an elegant anointing, elegance is just an interesting word. I love the word. It's not just that elegant is classy. We say, well, isn't she put together well? She has that latest dress and that outfit and really looks, and that's, that's great. That's true. But in science, elegant is used in a different way chemistry professor, friend of mine from the University of Illinois years ago said, Dick, when we can do an experiment in chemistry that oftentimes is simple, breathtakingly simple, but if it comes out the same way every time, you do the experiment, it comes out the same way, do it again and again and again and again, and it's always the same result. We call that elegant. I think that's also used in coding or in math and stuff like that. That word is used. It, you know, I look at Jesus and how he touches people's lives and, and he makes that touch again and the result, if the heart is open, is the same again and again and again and again, even though their conditions or circumstances are different. It's a, it's a mirror image and this perfume becomes a mirror image of that process. So let's read one more thing together. Seventh verse, the poor, Jesus says, you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. So they've said, why don't you take that and give it to the poor? And his response is, you'll always have the poor with you. And I'm saying, whoa, that's a little cold, isn't it, to have that response? But the thing is, he himself had been poor. He worked with the poor. Those were his people. He wasn't saying, don't give to the poor. He's just saying, you can do that 365 days a year. So do that. And, and during Passover, it was, uh, it was common to give gifts to the poor, sort of like our Thanksgiving or Christmas, you know. He wasn't saying don't give to the poor. He was just saying you can do that anytime, but you have this one moment with this woman and with me and this perfume, and that's different. And then he goes on to say this. You can read this with me. It's just a few words. 
She did what she could. That's it. She did what she could. I love that phrase. Uh, I, you know, I, I have been asked oftentimes and used to teach on this a fair amount that there are no relationships without trust and respect. And trust, one of the definitions of love, of trust is trust is doing what you can do, not what you can't. Trust is doing what you can do in a given situation. So I read this, she did what she could, and I, and I think just, just a few days before, Jesus had been in the temple, and there's this widow woman. We're not told her age or circumstances, but she was desperately poor, and she came to the temple to give her offerings. In the temple there, they had big urns shaped like sort of um, shofars or, or trumpets, you know, sort of that sort of thing, and you would put your money in, your, your hard money, if you will. And if you're wealthy, you put in your sack of money, pour it out, and it's just a, you know, you hear it echo across the porch of the, of the temple. And here comes this woman who has two mites. In our, in our definition today, two mites is less than a penny. And she drops it in, and you don't hear this, this elegant chorus. What you hear is ding, ding. And Jesus says, she, what she has done is more than all of those other people combined, wealthy people, because they gave out of their wealth and she gave out of her poverty. She gave her whole life savings in that moment. That was it. And we, she did her best. She did what she could, gave it her best. Turn around a few days and here's this other woman with the perfume doing the same thing. And then Jesus goes on to explain what this anointing means. Mark 14, 8, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Um, he'd been telling the disciples for weeks and months, I'm going to die. They're in denial. They don't want to hear that. Because if, if, if we're starting to believe you're the Messiah, the anointed one, the messiahs don't get crucified for Pete's sake. They're here to establish their kingdom. They rule it all. So they're not hearing it. And Jesus gives them one more shot at it and says, she's just anointed me for my burial. You, you remember when Jesus was crucified that they came and got his body and they wrapped it and they, and they used ointments and aloes in, in order to care for the body. And this is his phrase. She, did, she has done something beautiful to me not something for me, to me. See, she, she knows the significance to her apparently. It's an act of devotion. She just wa she wants to do it. What she doesn't know is the significance to him. And so he tells her what the significance is. You've just anointed me for my burial. Her act of love, that moment in time, becomes part of God's plan of redemption for us. That's just how it is. That moment in time, just one moment, changes everything. This past week, had a couple of friends come from Southern California. One of them was chairman of the board of university, and the other one was the president of that university. And I knew him some, but not really well. And sitting over lunch here in Fort Collins, I said, tell me about your faith journey. And he said, in 1970, I was a 17-year-old student at San Diego State University. I didn't grow up in a believing family. Uh, nothing. I, he said, I went to a Baptist church camp one time, and I liked it. You know, we had games and all that kind of stuff, but they gave me a little Bible, a, a little um, 
paraphrased Bible called um, Good News for Modern Man. Some of you remember that little Bible. And he said, as a 10-year-old or 11 or whatever it was, I, I, I read a little bit. I kind of liked it. But then over time, I forgot it. So here I am, not a believer at all, pagan, if you will. And I'm at San Diego State University as a freshman in 1970 and did all the, all the stuff that you can do as a freshman at State University in 1970. There's a whole range of stuff in 1970. And so he was, he was there doing it. And he said, I went home. I drove home for Christmas vacation to Northern California. And I'm driving down the street in Walnut Creek, California, which is by Oakland across from San Francisco. And he said, there in the middle of the road by the yellow line was a book lying there and people were just driving by. And you know, I just, I was curious. And so I just pulled up beside it, I didn't stop. He said, I want to be cool. I just eased the door open, reached down, grabbed the book, tossed it on the seat, drove off. Looked over, see what that book was. And it was a copy of this book Good news for modern man. And he said, and I started reading it again. And in that moment, it changed my trajectory. In that moment, uh, it, that, that next Sunday, I went to church, gave my life to Jesus. That next Sunday. And I'm saying, really? Just that one moment? I mean, who thinks, what's the deal with the book? And maybe we need to start leaving books in the middle of the road out here. See what, <laughs> see what happens with those, you know? And, you know, it's just an amazing thing. So there are two views, and I'm wrapping up. Two views represented in this room. Two totally different realities. One is, wow, what a waste. And Jesus' response to that is, wow, what a wonder. Waste and wonder are the two realities. And acts of love, as I've already said, often don't make sense. We, we do things because we want to do them. We do things because sometimes we need to do them. It's visceral and it's deep. It's what love does. When I was thinking about this, I thought about that song we used to sing. Haven't sung it for a number of years, but it goes like this. It's I need you more. I need you more, more than yesterday. I need you more, more than words can say. Some of you remember that song. It goes like this. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try singing it if you want to go with me. I don't want to be a stunted form of Andrea Bocelli, okay? So if you, if you try it with me, it would be great. It goes, it goes like this. I need you more, more than yesterday. I need you more, more than words can say. I need you more than ever before. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord more than the air I breathe, more than the song I sing, more than the next heartbeat, more than anything. And Lord, as time goes by, I'll be by your side, cause I never want to go back to my old life. I need you more, more than yesterday. I need you more. More than words can say, I need you more than ever before. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. You're a great choir. Give yourself a hand. I, I was outstanding. Right? <laughs> Finally, that's not all. Jesus turns around and says this. And th this is like this succinct. I've, I've taken like 25 minutes to say that. He said this like in two minutes, three minutes, whatever it was. Truly I tell you, why don't you read this with me? Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done 
will also be told in memory of her. What kind of a deal is this? She walks in with this unfathomable amount of wealth and pours it on his head, if, if you will. And here's his, his response is, let me tell you what this is. This ain't a waste. This is a wonder. And what, wherever the gospel is preached going forward from millennia throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of you. And here we are. 2,000 years later in Fort Collins, Colorado, wasn't a place, wasn't even on the map. The land was here, wasn't even here. And here we are telling her story again. I'm challenged by it, I'm inspired by it, and we remember her today, this moment for the ages. And then finally, a little P.S., Judas makes his move. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. Can't betray somebody unless you're close, Right? He's one of the 12. They were delighted to hear this, promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. You get this? She gives, Judas gets. She gives her best, does her best. Judas does his worst. And we tell her story, generation after generation after generation, as something to inspire and charge our lives. Let me close. Whenever I read a biography that has pure devotion connected to it, I love those. I encourage you to read those. We live in a time where we need all the encouragement we can get in terms of what authentic love looks like, what commitment to things looks like. There was a mom, there we go, another woman, a mom in 1895 who brought her boy, eight years old, Billy, to, she had come to faith, and she brought her boy to a church in downtown Chicago, famous church now called Moody Church. And the, the preacher, the speaker at the end gave an invitation that if you want to follow Jesus, come to the front. And as one account I read, Billy in his sailor suit gets up and walks down to the front and gives as much as he understands, I suppose, of his eight-year-old life to as much as he can understand of Jesus. And that was a moment that shaped his life. His family was very wealthy. They were multimillionaires in mining. His last name was Borden. This wasn't the dairy family. This was a mining family. And Billy Borden gave his life to the Lord at eight. When he was 16, he graduated high school and his parents sent him around the world with a chaperone to get a feel for the world around there. And Billy, Bill came back and he got a feel for the world and said, I want to go tell the good news about Jesus to the world. His father was not pleased with that. But he goes off at age 17 to Yale. He's a millionaire now. He goes off to Yale and... Um, gets involved there with, a, with his, his uh, sweet mate. They start doing a little Bible study together and then others join in, encouraged by a faculty member along the way. I think at that time, Yale maybe had 1,300 students, something like that. And of course, he's using his money. He's giving his money away his best. He's doing what he can. And he builds a rescue mission in Bridgeport, which is kind of a tough town next to New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale is. He's helping people right, left, and center with his money because he's doing what he can, giving his best. And... Um, by the time he left Yale in four years, he, he was an athlete. He was a wrestler, and he did crew. I don't know if you've seen that film, Boys in the Boat. That's, that's what he did for Yale. And he, he just, um, he was so generous with people and to people. And by the time he left, it is said in one account that out of 1,300 students at Yale, almost 1,000 of them were in little groups like he had started, which is hard to imagine. But that's what happened. He graduated Yale and went off to Princeton Seminary, and after three years there, 
he had, he had sensed in that trip around the world that he wanted to go to China. There were some Muslim Chinese up in the north part. And so he went off. He said, if I'm going to work with, a, with Muslim folks, I want to know the Quran and I want to be able to read it in Arabic. And, and so he went to Cairo, Egypt to study Arabic. He left, I think it was December 17th in 1912 and sailed to Cairo, was there a couple of months. And in March of 1913, he contracted spinal meningitis. And on April the 9th, 1913, he died. Eight years ago this month, I stood by Bill Borden's grave in Cairo in the American Cemetery. And on his tombstone, this is what it says. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, I mean, who, who would take their entire fortune and spend it, invest it freely going along? When he died, his will said, give all my money to missions enterprises around the world. And they did that. His mother had just arrived in Cairo not knowing he was sick. And she was there when he passed away and the family got his Bible, and um, Bill had written in the flyleaf, apparently, two words, no reserves. I'm all in. I'm going to give you my best. Along the way, his father said, you know, you're not going to be part of this company because I don't buy what you're doing. And he had written, no retreat. I'm in. I'm not backing up. And in the last part of the Bible, on his deathbed, he wrote, no regrets. Bill Borden was 25 years old. When I stood by his grave, it gives you goosebumps to think about that and to know these words, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. I'll explain it this way. He did what he could and he did it with the best that he had. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy in our lives. And if there is anyone in the sound of my voice this morning who says, I don't know what I can do. I have really not ever heard this before or I've hung around it for a while, but I sense a tugging in my heart. That's the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that drew Billy Borden. And what you can do is say, I want to start. I want to check this out. I want to read or I want to hang out with people who know Jesus. That's a start. But Lord, thank you for the inspiration of a woman in a moment who acted in love. And we get the benefit because it was a thing of wonder. And it still is. And we are grateful. In Jesus' name. And everyone said. If you're able to stand, why don't you stand with us and let's sing a, a thankful song in gratitude to God.
Don't you love that song? Let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I'm rich because of what the Lord has done. You can clap for that if you want. I think that's wonderful. Our prayer team, our prayer team is coming. We do this every week because it's an important part of our time together. There are a handful of folks that will be here at the front. And some of you have come with a heavy heart today. Some of you are feeling the weight of something perhaps you didn't even feel last week. John Welch, the old Scottish evangelist, said one time that in every seat or in every pew back in the day, there sits a broken heart. I've sat there in churches and places with a broken heart over something. So if you're there, there will be people here who will care for you and help you have a prayer with you. If you're a guest here, we're so grateful you came. We'd love to see you. Several of us will be back by guest services as you step out. But thank you so much for being here. It's, a, it's wonderful to be together. Wonderful to lift our hearts in praise to the Lord and know his grace in our lives. So here's a, here's a good word for you. Here's a benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And wherever you are this week, here's a thought. Do what you can. Give it your best. So there. God bless you. Go in his grace.